All right, Stephen. Well, first, just wanted to thank you for inviting me into your house and making time. I know you're a busy guy. And uh, welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. Thank you. It's great to meet you, too. Likewise. I always like to start by getting a background on how people have been able to get to the places where they are in their lives and careers. You have been a prolific essayist, writer, nonfiction historian for a long time. Where does that come from? Where did that initial interest and and talent stem from in in your life and your background? Well, I've only actually been writing history straight up for about 10 or 12 years. So I was, you know, for uh, many years, I was a magazine writer. Uh, first, uh, at Philly, after I went to Penn, um, first worked, um, at a little, uh, biweekly out on Long Island, but mostly, uh, you know, I got started at Philadelphia magazine in the eighties and, um, you know, Philadelphia magazine, uh, in the eighties was a very substantial, one of the more, most substantial of the city magazines, uh, actually the first city magazine. Uh, and we big, did big, long investigative stories, stories with, uh, a lot of historical background to them and a lot of reporting. So they were, uh, you know, they were the kinds of stories that you learn how to do all different kinds of writing. So you yeah. learn how to do face-to-face interviewing. You learn how to do historical recreation. Um, you figure out what's a good story um, and when people will listen to it. And uh, so I worked at Philly Mag f- uh, straight through for a number of years, writing long uh, stories, cover stories, sometimes shorter stories. And um, then uh, started adding uh, national freelancing and books uh, sort of in the later '80s, so I did um, I did a piece uh, about the model Gia, yeah. um, who now people know about, but back then <laughs> nobody but people in Philly knew about uh, her. You know, a, a radio, a TV talk show host called me and said that the mom had called in uh, at a show they had done about AIDS. This is very early in AIDS; nobody was really covering women and AIDS at all. Mm. Um, said you should talk to this mom, so I ended up doing a, a long magazine story about her that ended up being uh, my first book. Mm-hmm. And so then I was um, working for magazines. I was working for GQ at that time as well, uh, working at Philly Mag, always living in Philly and um, and and starting to write books. So uh, I do some historical books and some contemporary journalism books. And um, my, this is not the most careerist way to do this. I mean, I'm sort of uh, – I'd like to think that I'm interestingly all over the place, but perhaps only interestingly to myself and my wife. <laughs> Um, and, and my agent, that's good. Um, and, uh, but that's, you know, when you grow up at a general interest magazine, you know, you're taught to be all over the place, yeah. uh, because at any given time you could have to write something very serious, something very light, you know, a profile of somebody, uh, who changed the world, a profile of somebody who thinks they're going to change the world. So it's a lot of different kinds of work and I've tried to do that. So I've written seven books, um, and they are all real different from each other. Yeah. And in the meantime, while I was doing that, I um, I worked at Philly Mag straight through. So I worked at Philly Mag for almost 20 years and then was editor-in-chief, which is the surest way to get fired, <laughs> um, which I did. But now I'm back as an editor-at-large. And uh, I worked at GQ for a number of years as a staff writer and as a music columnist. <laughs> and then I was a staff writer at Vanity Fair for a number of years. And then I was a staff writer at Glamour for a number of years. <laughs> and... Um, after that, I was I've been mostly writing books. So yeah. I did um, this book on Gia. Uh, I wrote a book about the pharmaceutical business and about pharmaceutical safety. After my wife had an adverse drug reaction to an antibiotic, mm. uh, grew out of a magazine story. Um, I wrote a book about the retail business of religion, 
uh, following uh, one of the nation's biggest uh, Jewish congregations as they chose a new religious leader. Um, and um, then I started looking into history books. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of magazine writers, I think, after 9-11 um, – you started seeing a lot more American history books being written by magazine writers. So um, I think the combination of um, the David McCulloch, John Adams biography was hugely important. I think the devil in the white city, Eric Larson was hugely important. But I think after that, it's not surprising that a bunch of us and even those of us who were working at Vanity Fair, I mean, we were already doing that kind of work because Vanity Fair would have historical narrative stories in it. Um, but that kind of writing became more in books. So um, I wrote a book about uh, Fred Harvey, who's an a amazing um, hospitality entrepreneur who ran all the restaurants and hotels along the Santa Fe Railroad uh, during the opening of the West. Hmm. Uh, really an excuse for my wife and I to go to Santa Fe <laughs> and to the Grand Canyon a lot. Um, but a great American story that really just made me understand also just what history just what history book writing is, for, for a general history writing is. And um, – I just came out of a period where I produced two books in three years. One is a book that I wrote with uh, Congressman Patrick, Patrick Kennedy, yeah. Common Struggle, uh, which combined his uh, very open retelling of his life, uh, both as a Kennedy and as somebody struggling with bipolar disorder and substance abuse, and with uh, my years of reporting about the politics of mental health care. Mm. Uh, really interesting, fun project. Um, and uh, while I was doing that, we were also working on this biography of Benjamin Rush. When I say we, um, you know, I teach at Penn and Columbia, but I, I work with a lot of Penn students who help me research. Yep. So during Rush, we had lots of Penn students who uh, contributed to the research of the Rush book. And um, the Rush book came out in 2018. And I've been, <laughs> I think it's been the last two years talking about Rush. Yeah. And, uh, and working on my next book, which isn't sold yet, so I'm not going to talk to you about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the Rush it was somebody who I was greatly fascinated by because he's considered the founding father of American mental health care, but also is a, is a guided tour through the American Revolutionary Period. And it's a tour that no one's taken before. So Rush is quoted in almost every important Revolutionary War book because his letters are very interesting and he wrote hmm. really interesting memoir things as well. But no one really had ever taken him seriously as a character himself. But he saw everything, he participated in most of it. What he didn't participate in directly, he was watching and commenting on and he became very close friends with John, Ad John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so he was just a great way to uh, – understand this and also you know i you know we are basically like four blocks from independence hall yeah so you know when you live in philadelphia you have sort of a love-hate relationship with american history mm -hmm. um you know all these cool things happen here most of us don't know that much about them and of course we're dealing with all the hordes of people who are coming in the lineup <laughs> to see the liberty bell so uh, it's easy to not engage and this was really my attempt to engage and so now um, I just have this wonderful uh, appreciation for what happened down the street here. Yeah. Uh, because the other part of it I realize as somebody who lives in Philadelphia and has been writing from Philadelphia my whole career, um, the story of the revolution, although most of the good things, interesting things happened here, you know, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, it was the first capital for any period of time. Uh, the story of the revolution is always told through the eyes of Massachusetts and Virginia, mm. um, which isn't fair. And now that Hamilton is you know, on Broadway through New York, as if New York contributed anything, yeah. uh, which I think kind of it really didn't. Um, 
But so, you know, to to write a history of the revolution through the eyes of Philadelphia and Philadelphians, Benjamin Rush being one of the leaders, um, was really interesting. And yeah. the fact that it it came out and then the and then the COVID happened and people were so interested in the uh, similarities between what happened during the 1793 yellow fever epidemic that Benjamin Rush was the hero and anti-hero of. And, um, and what was happening during COVID uh, meant that there was a lot of uh, conversations uh, about uh, American medical care, about American political uh, fract- fr- fractionalism, factionalism. And uh, so it's been, an, it's, it's been an interesting time to be Benjamin Rush's biographer, yeah. I will say. You, those, those subjects are, the breadth is incredible. Just the difference of subject that you've covered over your career. Did you know early in life that you were a writer? I mean, did you identify with that as a, as an identity from an early age, or is that something you kind of grew into as you became an adult? Well, I'm a nonfiction writer. I'm a journalist. Yeah. So, you know, my wife who's upstairs on the third floor working on her next novel is a writer. Yeah. Okay. She's a fiction writer. She's a poet. That, that to me is what a writer is. (laughs) Okay. Um, a journalist and a long form nonfiction writer is something a little different. Um, and so I would say that I never kidded myself that I was going to be a fiction writer. I mean, every time I tried fiction, it was terrible. Mm. And I was actually quite lucky. My mentor in college, I gave her a novella that I tried after graduating from uh, college. And she edited the whole thing. And at the end, she wrote, you should never write fiction again. Um, and she was right. So, I mean, I consider what I do to be something different than just writing. It's, mm. it's reporting. It's storytelling. It's journalism. Mm. It's a job. Yeah. Um, and so I've always uh, had a job. I've always been paid to do this. I worked at magazines where people gave you assignments and you did the stories. I write books that people give you advances for. Hmm. Um, you know, people who write novels write novels and then sell them. Yeah. It's a, so it's a little different uh, thing. I wouldn't say that it's not entrepreneurial and occasionally a weird tightrope walk, but I think it's a it's a different type of walk than sometimes people think when they say you're a writer. Mm-hmm. But so I was always interested. I mean, I always was incredibly curious, always incredibly nosy, incredibly nosy, <laughs> um, which definitely helps. Um, I was always, I always wrote well enough. The way I looked at it is I always wrote well enough that I didn't do the assignments the way they were supposed to be done. Mm. Cause I always found the way that they were supposed to be done to be kind of boring. So I would kind of do them the way I thought would be interesting. And then, you know, most of the time the, Teachers would go, oh, that's interesting. You did something interesting. And every once in a while, you'd have a teacher who would say, like, no, this has to be exactly the way we, te- we teach you to do this yeah. in academic writing. So uh, that was always an issue because I was always not uh, that disciplined to write things in sort of academic style. Mm. Um, and, I te- and I teach the same way too, which I'm sure some of my students like and some of them and some of their other teachers don't like. Yeah. Um, so, but I, and, and I was encouraged to do that. I was encouraged uh, that I was a good communicator. And, um, but, you know, I thought I would be a lawyer. My parents thought I would be a lawyer. And uh, that was, but when I got to college, I got very interested in nonfiction writing. I had a mentor there who was incredibly charismatic and wonderful and uh in the 1970s to tell students at penn that they could have a career other than business or being a doctor being a lawyer was somewhat blasphemous but she was and she encouraged those of us who were interested in this that we could do this that this could be our job and we could get paid for it um and so uh and we worked at campus magazine and so um that seemed like a realistic thing to do and my parents basically said um 
please take the law board so we can at least pretend that you could have gone to law school. And then um, if you want to try to make a living doing this, do it. Hmm. And if you can't, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, luckily I was always able to make an okay living doing it. And um, so, you know, it just – over the time, you just – you know, you look back, you've written a lot of stories. I mean, mm -hmm. I've just written hundreds of long stories and um, about a lot of different things. Some of the things are things that I always knew I cared about. Sometimes you write better about things you know nothing about and you learn about from scratch because you explain them better uh, to people than mm. the things that you know that you think other people know. Mm. And uh, But, you know, I was always encouraged and at a certain point my parents admitted that this was the right thing for me to do. And um, so it, it's been, you know, it's been a good career. It's not a good career. I'm, you know, still in the middle of it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. The projects that have taken up years of your time, these books that you've taken, I think you mentioned the total now is seven. Where does that, the decision to make this a big part of your life where you're going to be making, dedicating years of your life potentially to writing these books, is that sheer intuition? How do you think you make those decisions? Well, you could say it's sheer stupidity. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think any of them, I mean, believe me, every book proposal I've ever done says the book's going to be done in two years. Yeah. Because, you know, why would you not say that? And of course you think that, but things end up taking longer for a variety of reasons. And and I never only, you know, there are a lot of people I think who only work on a book when they're doing a book. I mean, I always was taught at a, at a magazine that if you're working on a bunch of different things that are different from each other at the same time, they all get better somehow hmm. because you get different perspective. So when I'm writing a book, I'm, I'm usually teaching and I'm usually doing magazine articles and sometimes I'm working on another book. So, um, I, I look at the time period when somebody says, how long did you work on this book? It's okay. I worked on the rush book for five years. That's true. But it's not like I didn't do anything else during that time. I mean, I finished another book that came out before the rush book. I wrote a bunch of magazine articles. I taught my magazine writing class at Columbia J school when I was teaching that. I mean, now I'm teaching in the, at the medical school. Hmm. Uh, I taught my courses at Penn and oversaw those students who do independent studies with me. Hmm. And, um, so it's not a linear thing, yeah. but you know, I mean, basically, uh, a lot of it comes from you do an sometimes you do an article and you just feel like, wow, I know so much more about this than even this long article, and um, so you you have that feeling before you know how to write a book, and um, so I had that feeling, and I actually had a book deal that I that crashed and burned before my Geo book. Hmm. Um, so you can you can get the inclination and you can actually even sell a book before you are ready to write a book. That can definitely happen. So I was fortunate that when that happened, I went back to Philly Mag and, start, and started again and then came to a second first book that ended up being better for me. So the Gia book, um, being a biography, um, was a better was a better first book for me yeah. than um, the first book that I had been working on. So. Um, and then, you know, look, some of the delays come from publishing. You know, my Fred Harvey book technically took like whatever, six years, but the last two of those were because my publisher was in mayhem and my editor was editing that ridiculous Warren Buffett book um, hmm. that they paid billions of dollars for and that sold Snowball? nine copies. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no. my editor, I had the best editor, Ann Harris. She was this classic editor at Bantam. And her last two books were my Fred Harvey book and, Snow and the Snowball. Yeah. Um, and... 
you know, she couldn't finish my book until the Buffett book was done. And, you know, she put so much time and energy in that book and it was such a bomb. Mm. Um, and, but I, you know, I was so lucky to have her. I did, f- you know, four books with her, mm. which is pretty unusual. Um, so, uh, you know, th- there can be different timing, but you know, the, the good thing, look, when you write contemporary journalism, if your book gets delayed, you like want to kill everybody. Mm. If you're writing a history book, I mean, it's not like everybody isn't still dead. Yeah. And uh, so as long as it takes to get it out, as long as it's, you know, as they bring it out in, a, in an aggressive way and, and, and work with you and try to sell it, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I like about history books. They aren't timed. And even though editors tend to buy them thinking, oh, we could publish this on the anniversary of this or the anniversary of this. I mean, the readers don't care. I mean, history readers, thank God for history readers. They just, they love to read. They love to learn about things. They, they love to learn about things they think they know everything about. And they really love to know things that they don't know anything about that they can't believe they don't know anything about. Mm. And I have gone out of my way with these history projects to try to pick books that people are like, why didn't I know all this before? Mm. So I'm not looking to write another George Washington biography or another Franklin Roosevelt biography. You know, I'm looking for characters that get you whose, whose stories are fascinating and not as well known, but who also get you to those other characters in, a, in an interesting and unique way. Yeah. The Gia book, it, it's funny. I got here a few days ago and walking around this area and noting the nonprofits, the organizations around town that are dedicated to, you know, AIDS fundraising or just the, with the AIDS epidemic. And it clicked with me when I was walking around the other day that the movie that really introduced me to what AIDS was as a boy was Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, that story. Was filmed that the, the apartment was right up the street from here. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's two blocks up Bainbridge Street is huh. where the apartment was where, where Tom Hanks lived. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember them filming it. What? You know, I'm now, at, and I think the country, for so much of the country now that weren't in their prime or in their even their adolescence in the 80s, it's hard to articulate or remember what that time was like. You were here, I assume, during the 80s sure. in Philly, and you wrote this book about this supermodel, the first supermodel, or some mm-hmm. would call her that. Mm-hmm. What's her story? What what happened there? What what resonated with you about it? Well, interestingly, you know, I had already been covering AIDS. I had done a big investigative story on the gay community, and I actually had gone to the gay circus in New York, you know, mm-hmm. during those first years yeah. when when things were still, you know, you know, no one talked about it. People were getting terrible medical care. And it was only about gay men, you know, in terms of openly. And then I got a, uh, I got a call from, as I said, from this TV host saying, you know, the model Gia, her mom just called um, and said that Gia died of AIDS. I mean, no one in town knew Gia died. Hmm. She was um, – I mean, she had been a very big model um, when I was in college and, you know, been on the cover of Cosmo. So hmm. it's like – I mean, it's not like I was a big Cosmo reader, but – you remember when you see those pictures of Gia, you remember them. She was unbelievably beautiful. And um, then uh, she kind of, and she was on the cover of Philly Mag not long before I started working there. Uh, so she was at the height of her modeling career. And then she disappeared. And I think people think that when a model disappears, she just goes back home and, and whatever. So I don't think people had any idea. So the mom called the show and the producer, the, the on-air host, uh, Wally Kennedy, called me. And uh, I met with her, with the mother, um, and she had all of Gia's stuff, like, piled up on the floor of her bedroom closet, um, which I took and and made copies of. And I started um, writing what I thought was going to be a sort of a pretty short whatever happened to kind of story with uh, Gia's mom and maybe a couple of her friends. 
But it turned out that um, almost everybody she knew in the fashion industry, all these people whose names I knew, uh, were actually very open to talking about her. And these are people that I generally thought of as being pretty superficial people who you have interviews with them about scarves and what the new color is and stuff like that. And starting with Francesco Scafullo, um, they were all like so amazingly moving and the interviews were so powerful and so in-depth and and so guilt-ridden. I mean, they all had felt that they should have done something, which is often what people who die of substance abuse disorders leave in their wake. Um, people who generally think it's not – it wasn't the person's decisions. It was something that I could have done something about. And I had done this kind of reporting before. I mean, I had done mental health-related stories. I had covered a series of teenage suicides. I had covered sexual abuse cases. So I was – I was the right guy for this job. I just didn't actually know when I started it that that was going to be the job. Um, so, but was what was amazing is the people that I reached out to. I mean, some people were afraid to talk about GIA. Some people were afraid to talk about AIDS. Hmm. This was this started in you know in the eight in the nineteen eighties, um, but and the original article came out. I want to say in eighty nine, but uh, and eighty eight, and so a certain number of people wouldn't talk to me, and but a lot of the people in the fashion business did. And so when it was done, even though it was like an eighteen thousand word story, it was wow. pretty long. You know, back in the old days of Philly Mag, we would go long. They would let us. You know, that was part of what was cool about the magazine. It had, you know, what we now consider like little book length stories. Yeah. So Gia's story was there was never any shortage. I mean, she had been everywhere in her twenty six years of life. You know, her story took you all over the world and to all these designers and all these fascinating places, but. To me, what was most moving besides the family members talking was that, you know, a lot of the people who tried to rehab her and tried to save her from her drug abuse before people realized she had AIDS, which no one knew anything about AIDS. You know, when she was told she had AIDS, somebody had to sort of, you know, she knew what it was because it was this disease that a couple of other prominent gay people had had, but no one ever talked about women getting AIDS. Yeah. And um, and the treatment at that time, people were wearing spacesuits around her. They, you know, they were afraid to touch her. So that reporting was really great to be able to do, uh, especially uh, about a woman because people hadn't done that. And when the piece came out, uh, it, it ended up being really one of the first pieces about women and AIDS. Hmm. And much to my utter astonishment, I found out afterwards that Cosmopolitan Magazine, which was so sex forward always, had actually never used the word AIDS in the magazine hmm. because – Helen Gurley Brown was nervous about admitting that there was a sexually transmitted disease that would, you know, quash that sort of sex in the single woman thing. And the first time they ever mentioned the word AIDS was when they reprinted my Gia story uh, from Philadelphia Magazine. So, uh, I, you know, I, I got a book contract and I went out to start doing even more of these interviews uh, a combination of recreating the fashion business and the culture during the time, the Bowie kid culture in Philadelphia, the gay club culture, and then the culture in New York. And unlike the article, which I did you know, by phone and in New York and in, in Philadelphia, uh, my wife and I went to Europe hmm. and we went to all the different fashion capitals and did what – you know, it's funny. Today, you can do this. You can do it on Zoom. Right, it's not a big deal to have a story that has oh, there's somebody from Milan, there's somebody you know. But back then, you know, a phone call was a billion dollars, yeah. and and you know, doing that kind of reporting was really unusual. So to go, okay, we're gonna get a plane ticket and we're gonna fly to Italy, 
and we're going to go to Rome and to Milan and we're going to interview people there. And then we're going to go to Germany and interview people in Munich and Hamburg, all the different places where there were fashion magazines that Gia had worked with or catalog companies. And then we're going to go to Paris and we're going to interview all the people in Paris. It was, you know, we were on the road for quite a long time. Yeah. It was a really fun trip for a young married couple. Yeah. But um, it's the kind of reporting that I think people do on Zoom now. And but we were we were there, and it was it was really a great experience, and uh, we were able to see the how different the worlds each. And, you know, Gia had to go from an American world to a French world to an Italian world to you know to a German world uh, of fashion, each of which competed against each other, each of which had its own photographers, hmm. and and you could see sort of you know like Helmut Newton and Chris von Wagenheim had come from the German area and you know different photographers that come from the french area different ones from the italians and also some of the european magazines let the american photographers be more adventurous hmm. so gia would do anything she didn't care about being nude she didn't care about the pictures being you know tough or harsh or anything she just wanted them to be amazing so the pictures of her are amazing part of the reason her story continues is one because it's an unbelievably interesting and tragic story from which we can learn many things about gender, about a lot of different things. But it's also because, you know, there's a lot of pictures from different time periods that are unbelievably dated. You look at them and go, God, who wore these clothes and what are these pictures? Whereas the pictures of Gia, you don't care about the clothes because the pictures are so inspired. And, um, it's endlessly interesting. I still come across pictures of Gia that I never saw before that are in the portfolios of some of these photographers whose estates are now looking through them more. And uh, so it was a great project to do. And I worked on it for a pretty long time. And I was doing it while I was um, writing a music column at GQ. So I'd mm. piggyback things. I had to go to Milan. You know, I did a story on model hotels in Milan mm. uh, for GQ. Uh, when we were in Paris uh, doing the interviews for that, um, I did a piece on, you know, France hired and minister of rock to try to build up its its uh, music industry in the country. Mm -hmm. So we spent an evening with the minister of rock and uh, him taking us around to all the different, you know, kinds of clubs. Uh, and um, we saw a French uh, punk band uh, covering um, Madonna songs and uh, then went across the street to see, um, you know, great Middle Eastern music. It was just a great experience. But yeah. You know, so, I mean, this is what happens when you work for magazines and you're working on a book. The goal is to sort of intertwine things. Yeah. So, if, if like, the play, if the, if, if the magazine didn't pay to fly you over there, they're very happy for you to, like, do a story yeah. um, from there. So, it's funny doing, doing some research for this interview. I, I came across pictures of her as well. And you're right. I mean, the, first of all, just her, her own beauty is the first thing that is obvious in every image that I, I saw of her. Um, what you mentioned in in speaking about her that there are many things that we can learn from her story and i think you used the word tragic in descri describing her life to some degree what happened to her what what do you what do you think we can learn from what from her story and her life well she was a child of divorce um and i think that her parents divorce is something that she didn't know how to process and her parents didn't know how to process which is a very basic uh, experience that, you know, we now take for granted now. Yeah. But back then, for somebody to be open about a divorce and about the challenging parts of being in between two divorced parents was not so common. Uh, and um, so Gia was definitely seen as somebody whose uh, attitudes were formed by that. 
Uh, she obviously was gay, but because she was beautiful, men didn't want to believe she was gay. So there were these really interesting gender things that went on with her uh, from her very young age. And um, it's not a surprise to me that she has become a hero in the lesbian community because she's a great lesbian. You know, she's somebody who was out at a time when most people weren't out or people were posing. And she's like, no, I'm gay. Hmm. You know, we're not playing around here, even though I'm, I'm a Bowie kid. I mean, I'm gay. I like women. That's it. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's unbelievably refreshing. It's something that if you're 12 years old today in America, you can do and people will encourage you. Yeah. At that time, that was not the case. And of course, Gia's mom didn't want her to be gay. She That bothered her. And she would have endless conversations with me about whether Gia was really gay. She, you know, So the mom was fascinating. The mom isn't living anymore at Kathleen. But she was both an incredibly outspoken, difficult woman. But the fact that she's willing to have these conversations with – somebody who's starting out as a perfect stranger and knowing that all of Gia's friends are sort of telling me other versions of these same stories. So there's a lot of, you know, Gia's story in terms of fashion is almost secondary of interest to the fact that she was just this really fascinating woman who uh, came up during a sexually charged time and was her sexuality was the only thing that was pretty clear about her. I think that she had bipolar disorder and that like no one paid attention to that then. And uh, she became addicted to drugs. And after that, she the challenge was to not be addicted to drugs. And, and she got a lot of good work. I mean, she spent uh, time in patient facilities for women. Uh, she did a lot of work to kick drugs. And part of what to me was unbelievably tragic about her story is that she did kick drugs. Hmm. And then she found out she had AIDS. So she actually just tried to kill herself with drugs uh, because she knew she was going to die. And then after that, she was just, you know, dealing with AIDS. So she was just um, a really interesting character, a great person to do a book about. I wish that she had lived longer so we could know more about her. Um, She also, uh, which is true of a lot of people who are addicted to drugs, she sort of, each person knows a little bit about the story and then other people don't know anything. So when you write the whole book, everybody's learning something because they only ever heard their part of the story. It was a really powerful experience. A lot of people in the industry were very worried that I was doing it. Um, There had not been a lot of in-depth writing about the modeling industry at all. And so for me to pick her uh, was, you know, something that people were concerned about. But the people who had been really close to her really believed that it was a good thing to do Hmm. and that her story needed to be told. And that even though they blamed themselves and were very clear on the things that they learned how to do with other young women who had drug or mental illness problems because of Gia, um, they felt it was okay to talk about their learning curve, which I thought was brave. Mm. And so the people who I worked on the book with were really became, you know, a group of people who I interacted with for a long time. And then after the book came out, it was all their fears were sort of put aside. So this, this all was sympathetic to the business. It was sympathetic to her. It was, um, emotionally sympathetic to the challenges that she was dealing with and the people were dealing with. And, so it became a different kind of thing. Mm. And um, I, was, I was very happy the way it turned out. And it was it, – and it's, you know, it's now almost 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, – but, you know, but the other thing is, is that, you know, there's now like this cult of Gia online. And what I love about the cult of Gia online is that it's not about superficial things. It's about 
how hard it is to be a young woman. It's about how hard it is to be a young gay woman. It's about women's health issues. You know, it's about discrimination. It's not about like, oh, look at the clothes. Yeah. And um, I would like to think that she would think that if she was going to end up being, you know, a cult hero like she is now, that it would be that her cult would be about these things that matter. Yeah. Um, so I, I love it that young women often tell me that the Gia book is the first biography they ever read of a woman or of a young person. Mm. And, you know, I, I hear that a lot. So, um, it was, I don't know, it, it ended up being a, you know, the, the article was very gratifying, very dark. Uh, the book was also very gratifying, very dark. And, um, the people who were in it, you know, many of them are still in my life. Yeah. My understanding is she died when she was 26, if I remember correctly. Yes. And she died. Um, I, do you, do you, her contraction of AIDS was almost certainly, or maybe it is definitively known through. You never know how anybody gets AIDS. Likely through heroin injections. Is that, Most is likely. That your, but she, you know, she was sexually active with men and women when she was high. So hmm. no one knows. Yeah. <laughs> At that time, it was really um, impolitic to ask. Yeah. And I think you just can't know. And it's just um, doesn't matter, you know. You still have it, and back then there was no treatment for it. I mean, I later spent a year reproducing the uh, unbelievably dramatic process of the drug companies developing the first drug for AIDS that works, the protease inhibitors. Mm. And the whole time I was doing it, I was thinking, God, you know, if Gia had just held on, um, she would be alive. Some yeah. of the people that I was talking to were people who had gotten AIDS in the same time period she had and just had 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 better health yeah and, and it stuck it out so it's um there is an aspect of it which is just like you know what if yeah i think whenever you write about somebody who's gone young there's always got to be a lot of what if and this is another what if as well but i would love to get your thoughts on it do you do you attribute her drug use as a self-medication for mental illness how, how do you view that i think that anybody who tells you they know the answer to that yeah. is um really <laughs> oversimplifying hmm. you know this is a and you know i, I write about uh, substance abuse disorders i write about mental illness my challenge is to make sure that people understand that we don't know the simple answer to these things and sometimes getting involved in the debate is a way of avoiding the challenge of treating mental illness and treating addiction yeah so no one knows which leads to which um, when I started reporting in this area, the two areas were separated as if they were two different things, even though the people in the fields knew that was wrong. Mm. But they knew that – you know, keep in mind, people with mental illness um, were not being taken – well taken care of and what was wrong with them, people thought they were making up. And, you know, and people with drug addiction and alcoholism were not loved by the community either. So yeah. each of them created their own worlds of care and self-preservation. Uh, the fact that they grew up separately is not their fault. Mm. Um, now they should be together, but they're not. Yeah. So, you know, when you're a reporter who covers this, you are always seeing the chasms between psychiatry and psychology and neurology, the chasms between um, uh, medication-assisted therapy uh, treatment for uh, drug and alcohol addiction and uh, – psychotherapy for them or or group 12-step dynamics as if these are warring factions um, that where somebody's going to win. Yeah. And so, so part of the problem is that there's not an easy answer to it. And what I would say is that, um, you know, Gia appears to me to have had uh, 
psychiatric, some psychiatric problems early on. Um, and, but there were a lot of drugs around during the time and it was an, an incredibly active, you know, the Bowie kid scenes and the gay club scene that she was involved in. You know, it was just a lot of people just throwing stuff in their mouths. Yeah. So, um, the answer is I don't know. And the other answer is it doesn't matter. I mean, the bigger issue is when you're there, what treatment works for you to stay safe and stay alive. Hmm. And so I think that these are, interestingly, they are existential questions that don't always help you get better. Hmm. And um, so I think they're interesting and I've been involved with them my whole life and I've written about them a lot. But I, I've come to realize that we're never going to get the perfect answer. You know, it's like the you know brain-mind debate. Hmm. What's brain, what's mind? It's a really interesting debate. The question is, are you having it while you are getting treatment for your mental illness, while you're getting treatment for your substance abuse, or are you debating it to avoid that treatment? Yeah. Um, which is unfortunately the latter is a lot of what happens. And a lot of times if your parents are asking it, they're not asking it because they want to support you getting treatment. They're asking you because they don't want to be known as the parents of somebody who has a mental illness because then they think that society will blame them. Yeah. So there's a lot of – it's funny. I mean, this is way more than you wanted to know. But there's a lot of – it's a very charged question. Mm. And especially when you write about these things and when you write about characters that are in the middle of these things, it makes you realize how challenging it is. And so every story I've ever done about mental illness or addiction, it, underlying it has been some of these discussions and how some of these discussions influence the person's ability to get better. Mm. And it's really, really challenging. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time talking about this with Patrick Kennedy. I mean, Patrick Kennedy has been one of the most open people about it. <clears throat> and the debates he was having were with some of the most famous people in the world. But it just goes to show you that every family has mental illness and addiction in them. Every family could do better with it. Hmm. And um, so I don't think Gia's family was any better or any worse. Yeah. And so did she self-medicate? Probably. Um, does at a certain point, if you're using heroin, does the fact that you're addicted to heroin become the bigger issue? Yes. Mm. Um, did she stop using heroin? Yes. But she wasn't off it long enough before she found out she had AIDS for us to know what her life would have been like <clears throat> clean. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people around her mourn that because they remember, you know, when she got clean. And, and how powerful that was, you know, to happen and then to see what happened, you know, over the next year is, you know, it's a lot. Yeah. So you were mentioning earlier in the conversation about um, a time when not that long ago, when there were journalists that were getting more into uh, nonfiction journalists who were getting into writing nonfiction books. And but a week ago, 10 days ago, I was interviewing Stephen Harrigan in Austin, whose best friend is Lawrence Wright, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote The Looming Tower, which is mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorite books, who I think fits that mold, is a sure. you know, investigative journalist by nature, but then wrote this incredible book about the history of Al-Qaeda uh, that I think ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. In, in shifting to talking about Benjamin Rush specifically, I would love sure. to maybe just start with a simple question. How did you learn about the man? Benjamin Rush? Um well, Benjamin Rush, uh, his picture is on – used to be on the seal of the American Psychiatric Association. Hmm. And um, I was doing a big investigative story after the Gia book came out. Uh, my next book was going to be uh, a book um, 
spending a year at a psychiatric in a psychiatric hospital writing about what mental health care was going to be like. So I was actually doing that at at this place here in Philadelphia, the Institute of Pennsylvania Hospital, which is one of the biggest uh, inpatient facilities in the world. Hmm. And um, I didn't end up writing that book. The material ended up going somewhere else. But so I was there the year that the American Psychiatric Association had its 150th anniversary meeting in Philadelphia because the APA was born in Philadelphia in the 1840s. And Benjamin Rush's picture was on everything because, you know, he was on the bag. I mean, I have the bag. It's right over there from the from the thing. Um, so I knew he was associated with mental illness somehow. And I, I didn't know anything about him as a signer. I mean, I, my knowledge of the revolution is so pediatric, uh, you know, before this. I mean, it's just like very much 10th grade and not good 10th grade. No. You know, and so uh, – quite embarrassing, you know. It, it, I mean, in Philadelphia, I guess you know a little bit more because you walk past the signs mm. of this happened here, this happened here. But, I mean, I didn't really know that much about it. So, I, I had an inkling that Benjamin Rush was a big deal person in the history of mental illness. But when you ask people at APA what he did, none of them knew. They just knew that he was famous and they were supposed to know. So, um, I really tucked that away and, it, you know, I just knew about him and that's really it. And when I started writing history books, um, I started looking at different subjects that I would do. And as, as I told you, the first book I did was this book about the Southwest and about Fred Harvey, about the railroads. And um, so after that, I thought, well, you know, I live down the street from American history. Maybe I should try to find something that would let me learn about this. Because again, I, I always think you write better if you write about something that you know absolutely nothing about when you start. Uh, some of the hardest things that I've done in mental health have been writing about mental health things to people who I think should already know certain parts of the story. Yeah. And, and they don't. So um, I started looking for uh, something that was about Philadelphia that had a historical basis. And uh, the first thing I landed on actually was the Liberty Bell. So uh, I got this idea that I would write a book about the Liberty Bell. And I would uh, – and the narrative of the book would be the life of the Liberty Bell – but it would be built around a very specific event that I had learned about in the Fred, doing the Fred Harvey book, which was, you know, I learned about everything from the railroads in the Fred Harvey books, every famous railroad thing I learned a little bit about. Hmm. So one of the more famous railroad things I learned about is that in 1915, to get America excited about being in the First World War, the Liberty Bell was taken across the country on a train and taken to the San, San Francisco and San Diego World's Fairs. Hmm. And so um, – I started researching that as a spine for the piece because it was a really interesting story about the progressive era and about American patriotism. And I was lucky to find that the city of Philadelphia had actually photographed the entire trip and there were these old books of the pictures hmm. that no one had digitized. And I actually found one copy of the book that was in really great shape um, and the Athenaeum and um, Independence National Historical Park paid to have it digitized. Hmm. So we would have hundreds of these amazing old pictures of people from every walk of life posing with the Liberty Bell. And it was so interesting and so cool. So I wrote this big book proposal. And it turns out that you can't write a book about a not person. Right? People want a history book to be about a person. Yeah. And so um, I ended up doing it as a big cover story for Smithsonian Magazine. And they did a wonderful map with the pictures and we put the pictures online. It was a great project. Really, it was really fun. But it was it was the leftover of the book. So I 
actually started talking to editors who had liked the idea of me writing a history book that was about Philadelphia, but didn't want to publish a book about the history of the Liberty Bell. Because obviously no one lived long enough to be the main character with the Liberty Bell. Yeah. And so I started talking to them about characters that I would be able to do a biography of that would saw that would address some of the same issues. Hmm. And uh, you know, here's Benjamin Rush. And so I just, you know, on my list of possible people, there was Benjamin Rush. So I started looking at Benjamin Rush, and as I looked into his story, I was utterly amazed at what an incredible story it was and how little he had been written about and how the things that had been written about him you would never read on purpose. You know, there was, you know, compared to other founding fathers, there were so little biographical work. It, most of it was really boring. And um, no one had taken advantage of some of the newer things that had been available. And certainly none of it had been written with the kind of style that we have become accustomed to. I mean, in, in a way, John Adams has fueled a lot of this, right? Yeah. Because originally, this is before your time, you're a young guy. But, you know, in the in the 1970s, the Adams Chronicles on PBS was is sort of how first people first found out about John Adams. John mm -hmm. Adams was not like a major um, founder originally. Mm -hmm. You know, the founders, as Rush and Adams often bitched about, you know, Washington and Franklin did everything. Yeah. The rest of these guys just kind of showed up and, you know, cleaned up after them. Uh, Jefferson a little bit. But so um, it, the contemporary world of how we write about these founders in a modern way really starts with, you know, McCulloch, John Adams biography – so there was certainly nothing that had been done with Rush about that. So I started digging in and realized, one, there was a lot of materials that nobody had published. No one had taken his story seriously, just as a really good story. Mm -hmm. And he was the first important American doctor. He taught the first 3,000 doctors in America that became doctors. Mm -hmm. um, he was the founding father of American psychiatry and, psychi and clinical psychology and you know talked about how the problems in the brain had to stop being thought of as being failures of belief because people thought this was a religious problem hmm. or failures of will, that these were medical issues and we were going to treat them medically. Obviously, what the things that were available to them medically weren't great, but the idea that you would treat them with what you had medically it was an incredible breakthrough, which people don't realize happened in America because there are, were writers in France and England who wrote about these things a little bit later than Rush. But Rush never really got credit for that. Hmm. And he was also just a, a fascinating guy. He, his relationship with his wife, who was quite bright, who came from a family. Her mom was a writer. Um, his wife, Julia, was really smart, well-educated, interesting. Um, they had a ton of kids. Their kids were interesting. They were among the couples. You know, A lot of the founding couples weren't great couples. Hmm. Um, obviously, the Jeffersons <laughs> didn't do so well. Um, but, you know, the Rushes and the Adamses were couple friends. Yeah. And because they they had uh, kids, some kids the same age, but they also just, they you know, Adams and Rush both loved their wives and saw their wives as equals. <clears throat> and so that makes for a really different version of the story of American history. It's not just a bunch of white guys doing stuff. Yeah. Um, Rush also um, was involved in the creation of the first black churches in America. He was the leading abolitionist of his day. He talked not only about ending slavery, but really confronted prejudice against free blacks in the North, which was as big an issue to him in Philadelphia as slavery was. And um, so the fact that no one uh, had paid attention to that during all the years of racial awakening that, that Benjamin Rush had written all these things about this were really interesting. Hmm. And so 
you know, I started. I you know, I pitched a book. I sold it to Crown, and I, I started working on it. I didn't think it was going to end up being a five hundred page book. Yeah. Um, but it, no one there ever questioned what it was because it was all narrative. It was all very interesting. It, it was all storytelling. I mean, my commitment was to never make the reader start reading footnotes and get involved in historical analysis. Like if they want to read the chapter notes at the end and they want to know what the debates are, that's fine. Hmm. But my goal is to find the best evidence and tell them a story. Hmm. And so that they can and, – and the book expanded in part because what I didn't realize – I mean I knew that Rush was responsible for getting Adams and Jefferson back together at the end of their lives. That's like not a secret. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, well, there you go. Yeah. You know, um, every it, it's, it's an amazing story um, where – so Rush and Adams and Jefferson were, were close – and especially, you know, when the when the capital was in Philadelphia from 1790 to 1800, they were all in the same city, which, by the way, sucks for a biographer. Um, no letters, right? Right, because they're, they're all, all here, living, so yeah, they're here. Yeah. So they were in this interesting situation. Of course, Adams and Jefferson were, you know, enemies by this time when it came to political things, and Rush was close with both of them and in the middle of both of them, and then they ran against each other for president in 1800. The worst, meanest presidential election ever made the one we just had look like a cakewalk. And after that, you know, Adams never spoke to anybody again. He didn't even go to the inauguration. You know, he just left and didn't speak to Rush for five years, didn't speak to Jefferson for much longer. And um, Je Rush never saw Adams or Jefferson again. Jefferson went to Washington. Hmm. Um, Rush never went to Washington. And Adams went home. So after five years of never hearing from Adams, Adams sent Rush a letter. And Adams and Rush had been really close. Hmm. And he just said, like, we should communicate before one of us dies. Um, and this begins this unbelievable string of hundreds of letters over years between the two of them, which is like a complete recapitulation of the entire American Revolution, their own lives, the history of the world – uh, their fatherhood and their families, just ama these amazing letters. Um, it's part psychotherapy. It's part uh, each of them writing a memoir through letters. Um, I think that Abigail Adams, who really encouraged this, saw this as psychotherapy for John Adams, who was really depressed. Um, Julia Rush once made a funny comment. She said, you know, these letters are less like the letters of founding fathers and they're more like teenage girls writing about their boyfriends. <laughs> um, and the families would read the letters aloud around the fire. Um, Rush and Adams didn't let them read the ones in which they ripped Washington because Washington was like a god. Yeah. And the fact that they were critical of Washington would have shocked even their own families. But the other letters, they let them read. So this correspondence over a number of years then led to Rush – saying to Adams, you know, you and Jefferson can't not be friends. You know, you invented America. You know, if the people who invented America can be blown apart by political factionalism, yeah. what is the what hope does this country have? And of course, you know, keep in mind, like, it was not a slam dunk that America was going to continue yeah. at the time that this was going on. So Rush felt very strongly for personal reasons. These were two of his closest friends. He couldn't believe they weren't friends anymore. Uh, but also for political reasons, he's like, you know, you guys are like the north and the south of America. Hmm. You 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 had the ideas that became this country. And if you can't be friends again, I am really worried. 
So he started writing each of them letters to try to get them to be friends. Yeah. And, you know, he'd say like, I, I heard from Adams that somebody said they met with Adams and that Adams said he still loved you. And, and he sent that to Jefferson and you know, went back and forth for, for like years. And then finally, and of course they were both older than him. So he was doing this because he was afraid one of them was going to die. Yeah. And then at 1812, uh, for New Year's, Adams sent Jefferson a letter wishing him Happy New Year. And uh, they began a correspondence. And then ironically, Rush only lived another year and a quarter. Hmm. So he um, got his – he got the you know the family therapy of the founding fathers done because what would this country be like if Adams and Jefferson did not get back together? Because they then wrote letters for the next 13 years. Yeah. And interestingly, after Rush died, you know, Rush's son Richard was in the government. Um, you know, he was uh, the attorney general. He was – a number of different things. He was John Quincy Adams's running part, running mate for vice president. Hmm. So the the other thing that's cool about the Adamses and the Rushes is they are the only founding father family where the kids mattered in the U.S. government. So Richard Rush was a – I mean John Quincy Adams was president. He didn't win another term, but his running mate, the last term he ran for, was Benjamin Rush's son, hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. So there's all this correspondence before Rush dies, which the – which John Quincy and Richard are involved in too. And then after Rush dies, it's Adams, Jefferson, and Adams's kid and Rush's kid. Hmm. And um, and it goes on for years. And it, again, it's the same kind of thing. It's a combination of them talking about contemporary issues incredibly openly, talking about the past incredibly openly, talking about their ideas about religion, their disappointments in the country, their you – know, just everything. Hmm. And um, – Amazing correspondence, and this is all around about what I'm saying is that this correspondence ended up taking over the last quarter of the book, and I could not do it. Yeah, it was so interesting. You know, when you write about most characters, when they're like over 50 or 60, they're just doing nothing. You know, there's, there's just not much going on. And, and I love characters that who are when they're older are still being creative and doing stuff, and these guys. They were they were writing these letters, and these letters are they are the history of our country written in so many ways, and they are the history of being a founding father and a father hmm. rewritten in such powerful ways. And I could not do it, yeah. so I really used them a lot to do that. Um, and I'm still fascinated by these letters. I mean, I might go back to them just as a piece of, you know, it can be to me they're like a play. Yeah, and the people never saw each other, right? It's just letters. Um, you know, during the height of COVID, I thought like, you know, we should just read them out loud. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe we should. So it was, these are the kinds of things when you do a history book that you just can't know that you're going to get involved in. I mean, so to me, I was going to be mostly dealing with Benjamin Rush's life, signing the Declaration of Independence and being on the battlefields during the Revolutionary War, his uh, frenemy relationship with George Washington, mm. his difficult relationships with his fellow doctors in Philadelphia, which mattered in part because his two best, important, most important mentors in Philadelphia were the people who ran the Revolutionary Army hospitals. Hmm. So the fighting between Philadelphia doctors was something that you know George Washington could not believe what jerks these people were to each other. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Rush's story too. You know, Rush founded Dickinson College. He founded what became Franklin and Marshall College. He wrote the you know the first uh, important piece about the me medical view of alcoholism. He wrote the first important piece about a medical view of mental illness. 
he wrote uh, one of the most important pieces about public education, yeah. uh, reforming prisons, uh, against slavery. I mean, he wrote a lot of really interesting things. And luckily, they're all like really readable. He was, I mean, he was a mass market writer. He wrote these things for newspapers and for magazines. And luckily for me, he had good handwriting. <laughs> uh, because a lot of times when you do history work, if, if you really can't read the handwriting, you're still debating what they actually wrote. Yeah. You know, when they revise some of the Adam stuff, it's really like people sitting there debating, is that an R or a T, you know? And so with Rush, you normally can tell what he wrote, which actually saves a lot of time. Yeah. In your description of him and all of the different events that he got into in his career, he strikes me as like a humanist. I mean, that word comes to mind as somebody who is potentially well ahead of his time in terms of the way he was thinking about people who were ill, who were, who were surrounding him at that era. Is that how you think of, of him? How was he able to, um, you know, create a new perspective on people who had mental illnesses, addiction, et cetera, at that time? You know, I, I think that every, every person who's ahead of their time, each different part of, uh, each different strand of, of politics want to claim them. Yeah. So I, I don't know which is fairest to claim him. I mean, I think that he would have seen himself as an American enlightenment figure. Mm. You know, he, he grew up understanding the Scottish enlightenment. And I think that what he and a handful of other people from his time period believed was that America could have its own enlightenment mm. because the, the creation of that form of democracy that had never existed before in the world was going to open up America to a different ver- version of enlightenment yeah. that had ever come in Europe. Even though, of course, obviously he was interested in, in the European uh, things and in European scholars, and he was in touch with lots of people in Europe. But He went to medical school in Scotland, right? He went to medical school in Scotland, that, and that was like the only time he was out of the country. Hmm. In fact, it was one of the few times he was away from Philadelphia, except for during the war. I mean, this guy was a doctor here. Um, his patients would always get mad if he was away. Hmm. So, you know, his wife had a house, a beautiful house in Princeton. It's still there, Morvin. Um, it's a museum now. So he went to Princeton a lot. Uh, but mostly he was here. Hmm. So, yes, but he did go to Scotland. He did take a grand tour of uh, England, Scotland, uh, and France. We have his diaries, two of his three diaries. We are missing the London diary, which I have. it's always been my question as to why. Yeah. And I'm still waiting for somebody to show up with it one day. Um, but his diaries from Scotland are fascinating, um, in which he talks about being in the University of Edinburgh. He talks about meeting William Cullen, who is his hero as a doctor, but who is a deist. Hmm. And Rush is a religious guy, and he doesn't understand why the people that he loves as mentors don't have the same feeling about religion that he does, uh, which is part of the reason why he is so open-minded about religion. He's both very religious himself, but very cognizant of the fact that he has friends who are deists. He has friends who are Jewish. And he has friends in different parts of Christianity that don't get the equal protection, hmm. um, especially politically or when you're trying to get ta- get patients and get referrals. Hmm. So he's he's always mindful of that, which is part of the reason why he insists on the documents of the revolution being mindful of that. The Constitution, the Pennsylvania Constitution. He's very focused on separation of church and state issues, yeah. even though I'm sure he would wake up in the middle of the night and say, like, why can't everybody be Christian like me? Yeah. You know, because obviously I think my religion is the best. I mean, everybody thinks their religion is the best. Yeah. Or if they're non-religious, they think non-religion is the best. The question is, what is America supposed to be? And that's why I love Rush, because you know, the minute there is an America, right, the minute the war is over, Rush starts asking these big questions that only a doctor 
who's very philosophical, very political, and knows there are no easy answers to these questions, but knows they need to be posed loudly. What is a citizen of this country that we just invented supposed to be? Hmm. Right? If you if you're going to be the right kind of citizen, what does that mean? What are the responsibilities of being in this kind of republic that has never existed before? Yeah. What education should you have to have to be responsible? What um, feelings should you have about the uh, about the religion of others? About the feeling of others? What should you be doing about your prejudices? You know, and he was very conscious of that. In kind of, I think that you could look at it as you could look at it as humanistic, but I I think if you were a doctor, you would see it as public health. Yeah, you would just see it as public. So to me, you know, what was Rush? He was a doctor, and we were just trying to figure out what a doctor was. I mean, doctors were start were going from being more mystical characters to being more medicinal characters, but I think that Rush's idea was that he was going to bring a public health approach, even though public health didn't exist anymore, exist yet, because there was no public yet, mm. right? I mean, public health in, in Europe would be if the king did something, not if the community decided itself to make a decision about public health. Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. And I think I think a lot of times people forget that Rush wrote these things when there was nothing, right? So they say, oh, he agrees with me. He wanted this. I'm like, no, he was writing about this as a theoretical thing because it didn't exist at all. Yeah. He, but he, what he was saying was that this, these things were going to matter. Yeah. Um, he did. He, it was very clear to him. I think you know he came to Pennsylvania Hospital um, after he'd been teaching at Penn for a long time. Penn, Penn and Pennsylvania Hospital are separate. Hmm. So Penn is a university. It wasn't Penn yet. It was it was the College of uh, Philadelphia, um, and Pennsylvania Hospital was was. Older, it was this charity hospital. It's also right down the street from here. Hmm. And he was not on the staff the whole time. He joined the staff in the early 1780s. And when he did, he saw that almost half of the patients in the hospital were mentally ill people or who people with brain diseases because there was no way to differentiate at that time somebody who had mental illness, somebody who had epilepsy, somebody who had autism, somebody, you know, there's a lot of different things that have with that your brain isn't like everybody else's yeah. and maybe you can't take care of yourself. And they were all locked in the basement of Pennsylvania hospital and treated like prisoners. One, because there was a belief that you couldn't treat these things. And two, because the, the hospital made money for people paying to come and see the crazy people. It was horrible. Like they're also, show. There, yeah, freak show. There was no heat because at that time they believed that people with mental illness didn't feel hot and cold. And so finally in the, in the 1780s rush, was given the job of taking care of these patients. And he immediately announced, one, we're getting heaters. These are human beings. They do want heat. Um, we're not letting people pay to come look at them anymore. They're patients here. And while we don't have easy answers to what's wrong with them, and let's be clear, right here in 2021, we still don't have easy answers. Yeah. Um, we are going to treat them medically. We're going to treat them well. And we're going to do our best um, to see them as patients who should be taken care of in a hospital. And uh, he spoke first about alcoholism because the problem of alcoholism was massive among these patients and, frankly, among the staff. <laughs> um, so he talked about that first. And then he gave in 1786 this groundbreaking speech at the American Philosophical Society not long after Benjamin Franklin came back uh, about that is the bedrock speech that puts forth the ideas that mental illness has to be treated as a medical issue. And um, 
I mean, the speech is about a lot of other things too, but it, its basic concept is that. And rather than what, a moral failing, exactly. That's yeah. exactly what he's saying. I mean, the, the, what's astonishing is that that message, which was so clear to Benjamin Rush in 1786, is still something that we are trying to get people to understand today. Yeah. That that is the he recognized that this is the essential problem. And I will say, Benjamin Rush never gave a speech thinking, "Oh, I gave a speech that'll all be done." You know, he was a doctor. He understood that what he was trying to do was nick away at this and to inform the people who were going to be informed enough to do it right and to teach more and more doctors that what this was. So we we actually found evidence of him teaching depression the way we think of a depression. This is a medical problem. Here are the symptoms. As early as 1783 to the medical students who were working in the hospital. Hmm. And so – and that he gave the speech, which is really like sort of his – Big, you know, speech. And, um, of course, some people were freaked out by it because it was um, – again, this is a time when we're still trying to differentiate religion from medicine. Yeah. Now, we're still in some places trying to differentiate those things. So that's why it's actually really interesting to read because it a lot – we still struggle with – I swear to God, every generation struggles with this. And every person who gets the illness struggles with it personally with their family and the people around them. Mm. There's no way to blanketly – just get to everybody go like, oh, yeah, we know that. That's known knowledge. Yeah. And we can just say like, okay, we all know that. We can move on. Uh, it, it all has to be a learning curve. And the learning curve has to be hard for every person who has the illness and their families uh, and the people who love them. And it's 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 and so he really recognized that. Ironically, he had bipolar disorder himself, I think. Did he? Huh. I mean, he, you can clearly see in his – in his writings, one times when he's like really manic and kind of working like crazy and other times when he can't get out of bed. And the way he writes about depression and writes about suicide, it's like he knows too much about it to not have experienced it. He had a brother who had uh, what he described as a, as, as a neurological condition or something uh, who died pretty young. And then later his son became mentally ill. I mean, his, you know, the irony of Benjamin Rush's life, which I didn't really know about until I started digging into this book, is that his oldest son, John, was a physician who was supposed to take over for Benjamin Rush. He was supposed to be the next Benjamin Rush. And um, he actually did his paper when he got his MD at Penn on suicide prevention. And then um, he got into a duel with his best friend. He was a Navy doc. He was working in New Orleans. He got into a duel with his best friend. Uh, they had a fight over a line in Shakespeare. We never were told what the line in Shakespeare was. But we have newspaper reports, so we know what they were fighting about. Uh, the friend challenged him to a duel. Um, John thought that they would both shoot away. That's how a lot of duels ended. Yeah. Uh, but he found out at the last minute that his friend was going to aim true. And so he shot him. And, he, and his friend fell into his arms and died. And John uh, started going mad. And within a very short period of time was trying to take his own life. And um, he was taken care of by the doctors in New Orleans, many of whom had been Benjamin Rush's students who didn't want to report to their old teacher that they didn't know how to take care of his son you know, who was going to be his heir. Yeah. And then after um, a year of John getting better, getting worse, getting better, getting worse, um, he was sent home looking like a biblical madman, Rush described him. You know, his hair was all grown out. His fingernails were all grown out. Um and he became Rush's patient at Pennsylvania Hospital. And, of course, Rush at that time was the best-known doctor treating mental illness. It's not like they had a great success record, but the, those successes they had came from the treatments they gave there. And he assumed that he would be able to help his son, um, which he could not. 
And his son lived in Pennsylvania Hospital for more than 20 years and died at Pennsylvania Hospital in the psychiatric uh, ward of Pennsylvania Hospital. And so um, Rush had to anoint one of his other kids uh, very quickly because this was an incredible shock. Mm. This is one of the things that we see him explain to John Adams. You know, John Adams lost a son to alcoholism earlier than that. He was disowned, right? Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, Abigail was still in touch with him. John sort of had, and then, you know, John regretted a lot of things that he did. And so then here's Rush telling him, wow, my son, you know, is, is insane. And we're bringing him home and giving him reports on whether, you know, we brought him home, that it was bad. We, he had to go back. It's, I mean, it's unbelievably heartbreaking and just really personal. It's, it's a side of the founding fathers you just don't expect to get. Yeah. Right? You expect to find out about the founding fathers what they thought about slavery and what they thought about the Sedition Act. We forget they were human. Yeah. And and what's, what's great is that since Rush is, his do- is our doctor, he's always talking about the parts of them that are human. Even though he's as interested in the Sedition Act as anybody else yeah. and all the other political stuff. And so John Rush lives at Pennsylvania Hospital. And um, – and Benjamin Rush has to know that he's going to die with his son being mentally ill and being incurable, uh, which is heartbreaking to him. His next son, Richard, um, he unfortunately goes into politics, which Rush is against mm. because Rush had watched politics destroy the relationship between Adams and Jefferson. Yeah. The last thing he wanted was for his next son to be a politician, but Richard was a lawyer and he wanted to be in politics. And he ended up being in the Madison administration and going on to doing great things. The coolest thing that Richard did besides all his government service, um, he's the one who brought the Smithson money back from England that started the Smithsonian Institute. No kidding. The money was left to create a, a, a museum in America, but the British didn't want to let it come back to America. And since Richard was like a hotshot lawyer, he was sent over on a boat to come and bring the money back. And he won the case, and then he loaded the gold bars onto a boat, and they brought him back. And they left him at the, they stored them at the U.S. Mint here in Philly – well, they were just deciding what to do with it. Hmm. So he had a pretty interesting life. But to go to John, if we can, for a second, go ahead. His his own madness. Um, what were his symptoms? What what do you what do we think he was actually experiencing? And what, what was going on? With so him John, medically? John, when you look back on his life, and I mean, of course, one of the things that I try to do in all my nonfiction writing is to be really mental illness and substance abuse disorder uh, observant. Mm. I mean, I just think that people will do – a lot of times they'll do anything to avoid saying the obvious about characters because they think that that's a criticism of them. Yeah. But in fact, you know, my goal is to make sure that the reporting is right and that the medical reporting is right. Uh, the medical reporting of history is really key. So when you look back over John's life, you can see some things that in retrospect look like behavioral problems um, that when it got worse, you have to kind of wonder what's going on. So John was um, – John was pulled out of Princeton, you know, after he'd been there for a couple of months because his father heard that he was playing cards on the Sabbath. So, I mean, this is like a big deal to you and me. But And the other kids weren't pulled out, but John was. So the Rushes were also pretty um, uh, traditional parents. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, – and then John showed some anger issues around his father's – Controversy. So there were a lot of controversies about Rush during the 1790s, about the way he had treated yellow fever, uh, about his positions on Adams and Jefferson. And uh, John Rush, every once in a while, would just go off on the writers who were writing about his father and like he tried to attack a couple of them. So there was a violence thing hmm. about him a little bit. 
And, um, and, and I don't think anybody would have diagnosed it as that. But after he shot his best friend, uh, the descriptions of him are, are sort of straight up psychosis and straight up uh, suicide attempts, lots of suicide attempts. Um, even though what's very clear is that as a doctor, he knew how to cut himself in a way that would bleed but not die. Yeah. So um, – and, and there's reports of that. I mean the, his, his fellow doctors are saying that. So he just – you know, he just he, – he lost control. There was nothing that the doctor down there could do. And when Rush got them he, him here, there's nothing that Rush could do. So when John um, lived at the hospital, he was known for um, walking back and forth all day. In fact, there's there were like these pieces of wood that he would walk back and forth them, and he wore a groove in them. And people would come and watch him. I mean, he was a, a very well known mental Ill, mentally ill person because yeah. the hospital had an outdoor garden area, and people knew about John Rush. So um, he was. Um, you know, he would walk back and forth, you know, sort of gesticulating, talking to people who weren't there. And, you know, one of the ironies that I, I, I pieced this together from different things, but I found in an old book by another doctor who was later than Rush, he described uh, taking a very famous actor to see John Rush because the actor was only in his early 20s and he had decided to play King Lear and he heard the John Ru- about John Rush because John Rush was a well-known uh, mentally ill person mm. and he asked the hospital if he could observe John Rush so that he would be able to know how to be mad to play King Lear at his maddest mm. and um and that and that story was like very nicely preserved you know we found we found the description of it in the doctor's memoir and then we found the reviews hmm. i mean the reviews obviously didn't know they didn't know that he had observed john rush but the reviews asked like how does somebody who's 22 years old one play king lear yeah uh, but two play with such a sort of a muscular you know evo- evocative form of madness and you know what we know is that he did it by from observing john rush so we have some fairly decent descriptions of of what his day-to-day life was and what his external symptoms were. I think that, you know, there's only so much we can guess about one, how he might've um, responded to different treatments because the treatments at that time were um, bleeding, uh, sensory deprivation. Um, some, you know, there was a belief, Rush had a belief that, you know, it's funny, the belief isn't wrong. It's just not right the way he was dealing with it. But he believed that mental illness had something to do with blood flow in the brain, mm. which he was made fun of for years afterwards by psychoanalysts. But now, of course, you know, when we take PET scans and things like that, we're, part of what we're looking at is blood yep. flow in the brain. Yep. So, but his very simple solution to this was to put somebody on a wheel lying on their back and slowly revolve them to try to get more blood to their brain, thinking that maybe that would be something that yep. would work. So, of course, the, everyone, when you see these things, they're like, oh, they're torturing them. I mean, that wasn't what was happening. This was a relatively mild thing. Um, and it's mostly people who are anti-psychiatry who look at these early treatments. You know, this is desperation. You have people who are just like floridly psychotic. You have to try to do something for them. Um, I actually had a fascinating discussion with a leading uh, mental health professional about whether bleeding somebody when they are psychotic is the craziest thing in the world. I mean, bleeding somebody because they have an infection is a totally stupid thing to do. They didn't know that, but it, it doesn't turn out to be a good thing to do. But I, I said to him, I said, you know, in the overall scheme of things, 
how different is bleeding somebody until they pass out compared to giving them ECT until they have a seizure and pass out? Hmm. Or if you give them medication that knocks them out, I mean, is is it really that far off? And he said, well, if you put it that way, actually, no. You know, it's actually one of the few things they did that in some way mirrors what we have to do today with some patients who we cannot um, help control any other way. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, but those are the kinds of that's that's kind of an interesting kind of research to do to make yeah. a book like this. Um, I mean, that stuff's all in the, in the chapter notes. I mean, all I tried to do in the book was, you know, you have to decide when you're writing about these things whether you're going to make fun of it or not. Because every other writer makes fun of it. Yeah. But it's much more complicated than that. I mean, there are things that doctors did when I was 20 years ago that now we think is stupid. Right. So were they idiots or just did, did, did science move forward? Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I've had people come up to me at Rush things and say, like, well, how could he have done this? How could he have done bloodletting? I said, do you know anybody who has breast cancer? Or if, you, or if you're a doctor, have you treated breast cancer? I said, did you treat any of them with um, – you know, with with stem cell, tra- you know, with stem cell transplants, you know, which twenty years ago was cutting edge in science, and now we know doesn't do anything. Yeah, they're like, yeah. I said, so what's the difference? Yeah, you know, it's a, you know, does the fact that the science changed change your idea about whether the person was a credible healer? Yeah, trying to do a good job. It's, it, you know, it's challenging, and each each one of these things is different. And bleeding became politicized in the media. During the 1790s. And what's interesting is that people use those media columns that are like essays. They're they're wildly metaphorical essays as if they were written by scientists. Yeah. And so um, some of the things you do with Rush, I must say, you end up spending time. I mean, I spend some time on Twitter every week just trying to tell people who are repeating things about Rush that are absolutely not true, that they're not true. Because it's um, actually this this cartoon here. Somebody on on Twitter that I know who's a cartoonist made this for me for my birthday. <laughs> um, because I had so many times gone up there and said, "There's this very famous quote that Rush didn't say, but it's been attributed to him for over a hundred years, claiming that he said that there should be a constitutional amendment to protect the freedom of doctors." He, he never said this, hmm. um, and p- people repeat it all the time because they like it. Hmm. And it's like you can like this idea if you want, but Benjamin Rush never said this. Yeah. He never thought it. He never wrote anything like it. And so whenever somebody posts it who has enough Twitter followers that it matters, I don't do it with the people who only have nine. Mm. But, you know, I will say to them, this is not an accurate quote. Here's a peer-reviewed paper explaining how this non-accurate quote became part of, you know, social media. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them say thank you. Every once in a while, somebody says, I don't care, you know, because he probably thought it anyway. Yeah. Um, so uh, this guy who's a cartoonist and very funny guy said, it's like you're playing whack-a-mole with these guys. Yeah. So he sent me this cartoon for my birthday um, uh, of me playing whack-a-mole with the Rush book on people who are posting this quote. Amazing. So the, the, From a medical perspective, when you tell the story of John, and it does seem like from your telling of his story that it was the killing of his friend that really propelled him into a psychotic state or a deeply mentally yeah, ill Yeah, that's life. that. That's the way everybody who knew him described it. Yes, is your is your take on that that he had a predisposition for psychosis that was just he was for lack of a better phrase like pushed over the edge by this specific experience? How do you how do you um, explain that transition after that you know extremely intense moment? 
of the murder of his friend. Well, again, it's it's the same question you're asking about whether something is self-medication with drugs. I mean, do we understand that people can be triggered into psychosis um, by events? Yes, we do. Are these people – does this happen to them because they have a genetic predisposition or because the event is so overwhelming? We don't know the answer to that. Does John have anything in his past that looks psychologically – a little different than normal? I think yes. Hmm. Um, because he has these anger issues and, you know, duels and stuff like that that make you wonder. But hmm. I think it's all – one, it's dangerous to put our 21st century ideas about this on what they did back then. I yeah. mean – but I think that you could say, look, it's – the other thing that you need to know about psychotic illnesses is that John was in his 20s. Um, psychotic illnesses break for men – in their late teens and into their 20s. So it's not impossible that he was having a psychotic break already. I mean, every psychotic, everything that happens in mental illness is not triggered by trauma. Yeah. Sometimes we see them and we associate them. And I think sometimes patients feel comforted by the idea that this was brought on by an outside stressor, that it's not just inside them as a time bomb that was going to go off anyway. Yeah. But the truth is we don't know the answer to that. So I think that what's important is to study those ideas, understand those ideas, but not be slavish to them as if we can say like, oh, yeah, that's that. Mm. Um, because we don't know. So what I tr- – and it's interesting you ask that because, again, when you're writing about this and you're narrating it, you have to ask all those questions, write the most logical version of the story – that's going to lead the reader to think what you want them to think. So um, so in this case, I mean, a reader who already knows John Rush from my book because it's chronological knows that he had some behavior issues and that he had some anger issues. And he was having some trouble just like in relationships and stuff hmm. before this happened. Okay. So then how much is that part of it? He was a little lost. Let's say he was a little lost. I mean, he was yeah. a doctor. Um but he had moved to the south, hoping to get it together. He had been with the woman, didn't work out, you know. And then he had been on this boat, and his, you know, and he shot his best friend. So, which of those things led up to that? Was he already going in that direction before? I don't think we know the answer to that. Mm. Um, and I think that what happens is, and what's interesting is that Rush and Adams, Rush always talks about it as if the trigger was the thing. Even though his ideas as a doctor very clearly are that it's not all because of outside things, Hmm. right? Because we know that other people have traumas and they don't become psychotic. So how do we argue about that? Do we say they have different brains? Is it, you know, what is it? So I think that the question that's really important to remember is that once you're there, it doesn't really matter why you got there Hmm. unless there would be a different treatment. Yeah. Right. So, and I do think that there are some areas of mental health care where we are reaching the point where maybe we do have that and we do want to know because there is a difference between treating somebody for PTSD and treating somebody for clinical depression, even though there are some symptoms that cross over. Yeah. But we always have to be careful um, of thinking that we know the answers to those things. But clearly at the time, Rush gave what is a very typical parent's politically correct answer. My kid was fine until he shot his best friend, and then he was crazy. And that's the way Rush describes it to Adams. That's the way Rush describes it to his other friends. Even though he has certainly seen other people's kids 
because he's treated other founding fathers' kids in his hospital who became just as psychotic without anything as traumatizing as that. So he's 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 understanding that there's no perfect answer to this, but his the way he describes it to his friends is that you know John killed his best friend and he never recovered from that. Yeah. Um, and while I believe that that's factually true and it certainly informs what happened to him, I think that we have to be open to the idea that we don't know always how somebody gets to that point. Yeah. And um, and we have to be careful because the reductionism can be hurtful. And, you know, it's not just going to be hurtful for the patient too. I mean, sometimes the patient wants it to be that way. It's like, you know, and there's a certain amount of, if only this hadn't happened, I'd be fine. And then at other times people go, but the truth was I wasn't exactly perfect before this happened. Yeah. So how does that contribute to this? And that's, you know, when you when you do journalism and mental illness, a lot of times you meet people in their second, third, or fourth rounds of treatment. So they're different sometimes than they are in their first round of treatment when they're first getting all these ideas. And, you know, part of what I like writing about in mental illness is to give people an understanding that these are natural cycles. They're natural medical cycles in a lot of different illnesses, but they are, you know, very natural for mental for mental illness and addiction. And that you know, I just wish that everybody didn't have to learn them so personally. Yeah. I wish they could just – like I, that's why I try to write books. Like the book I did on Patrick, you know, it's about Patrick. But a lot of it is because Patrick and I wanted to write a book where people would read this and go, yeah, I mean that happens to a lot of people. It's not just you and it's not just the Kennedys and it's the cycle of these illnesses. Yeah. So um, he was – I have to say Patrick was really brave to agree to have a book be written by me. Um, because I dug into his medical history far more than he ever would have. and um, But he let me and he learned a lot about his own treatment that he didn't know, especially when, from when he was younger. And he, he and his wife Amy were so, I think, just so brave to say like, you know what? Every family has these illnesses. They are treatable. If we don't talk about them in this level of detail, they're never going to be treated. Yeah. And that's what we have to do to get people to pay attention to this politically. That's what we have to do to get them to pay attention to it interpersonally. Yeah. You know, you need to be able to hear that even Teddy Kennedy said to his kid, you just need a good swift kick in the ass and didn't recognize that he had, you know, an illness and that that is a common challenge and we have to stop being so judgmental about it and rise above it so that people can get taken care of. So Patrick and Amy really put it out there. Um, just in a way that I I continue to be astonished by. Yeah. And um so I'm just very proud of both of them that they were willing to do that. And um because it's very rare that people who are in these experiences will talk at the level of detail that you're asking about. Yeah. You know, so those kinds of questions are questions that Patrick asks himself in the book and asks his treatment professionals in the book because they are the right questions. Yeah. You know, Am I this way because this thing happened to me? Am I this way because I grew up a Kennedy? Or was I going to be this way no matter what? You know, my mom has struggled with alcoholism her whole life. You could say, oh, well, she's a Kennedy. She's done all these other things. But her mom, her mom struggled with alcoholism too. And she was not a Kennedy. Yeah. She was just somebody's mom. Yeah. Um, And so to be that open about all these things, again, I mean, that book has been out for six years now. And I still am amazed um, at the way Patrick and Amy were willing to let their story be out there 
uh, for all the right reasons. What are the big takeaways from the public's perspective, right? I mean, it, it sounds like part of your interest in writing their story was to be able to humanize this and to tell uh, how, you know, explain to some degree how common these these cycles are, as you mentioned. What, what for, for people who are just learning about his story, what are the big takeaways that you think are, are useful for people to know about and consider in their own lives and in society? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, the, the first one is completely political and is one of the reasons why Patrick would have agreed to do this. Hmm. I mean, until people with mental illness and addiction are protected in their medical coverage and insured in their medical coverage the way people are for every other illness, there's a huge political fight to be fought and, yeah. and whatever we have to do to win it. I mean, here's Patrick. Patrick and his dad got the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act passed. But it still hasn't been fully implemented because implementing it is hard. Mm. And implementing costs a lot of money. And so people are still having to fight to be covered. They're still having to fight their insurance companies who want to push their kids, their suicidal kids out of hospitals after they've been there for five days or seven days or you know 14 days. And so, so the biggest reason that Patrick did this, I think, is because he thought it would help. It would create an artifact – for that political fight that you could not ignore, that it wasn't just somebody saying a couple sentences in a Senate hearing yeah. or something like that, that it was like a real story involving all this stuff. And it also goes through the politics of the Mental Health Parity Act and still all the work that has to be done. So he, he's a politician. Yeah. He, did it, he did it for a political reason. But I think he's also been in enough meetings um, and in enough sharing situations that he knew – there's an awesome power in telling the truth about your illness. Yeah. I, I guess hardly anybody does it. Yeah. Or hardly anybody does it in, in, in public. Because I've seen Patrick tell his story to people who know his story. And they're still weeping by the end of the talk. Because it's, sadly, it is still an act of bravery to tell the truth that you have bipolar disorder. I, I, it shouldn't be an act of bravery. Yeah. It, you know, It's not an act of bravery to tell people you have irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> Maybe, it is. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, so so it's it's uh, so I think that it's just um, it, it's for those reasons, and then uh, I think that he and I just both got into this idea that telling the story would be really amazing and really powerful, hmm. and and I think it was, and I think it still is. I mean, uh, I hope that people keep still are buying and reading that book. It is an unusual book. The politics of it, some of it are different than they were in 2015 and 2016. Uh, but the story and its power and the story of the battle to make sure that people with mental illness and addiction get the same insurance coverage as other people. And and to say the same means that it has to rise to the level of quality for those illnesses, right? So we have watched people with cancer learn what people with cancer need to get good coverage. Yep. When the war on cancer started with Nixon, it's not like everybody knew, right? They threw money at it, but they didn't really know what the money should be spent for. We now have a pretty good idea what the money should be spent for. In mental illness, we're still nowhere near that. No one's saying, yes, we're going to pay for everything you need because people are still arguing about this. And during all the fights about the Affordable Care Act, you know, when people saw pre-existing conditions, you know the first pre-existing condition that goes is mental illness and addiction coverage yep. because it's so, it's so expensive and people are already fighting to get it. So it's um, – it's just, you know, unfortunately, Patrick's story is a timeless story. Mm. Patrick's story is John Rush's story. Yeah. The difference is that Patrick lived, Patrick was cognizant, and Patrick 
had his medical records. He had the best medical care in the world. Yeah. So we can see also the advance of medical care. Yeah, you can see the difference between what the medical care is like when Patrick's a teenager um, and being, you know, uh, putting into and and going to inpatient treatment uh, for drug use. And later when he's going to Mayo Clinic uh, for for other things. And God, thank God for Mayo Clinic. When you go to the Mayo Clinic, when you leave, they give you a DVD of every little thing that happened in your body. (laughs) So as a reporter, I got to say, that's a, that's, it's a lot of truth. Yeah. And so it's good because, you know, a lot of times, one of the things that's funny about writing about mental illness is that people who are mental illness advocates who talk about their own illnesses don't always have all the facts or they they conveniently don't tell certain facts because they're trying to make a certain point. Yeah. Whereas if you're a reporter covering them, all you want to know is what are all the facts? Yeah. You know, how can we tell the whole story? Um, because again, it, I mean, it goes back to John Rush. Does did John Rush have a traumatizing event? Does it make his dad feel better to say my son was perfectly fine until he shot this guy? Yes. Does that mean it's true? Could be. Could not be. Yeah. Um, we don't want to just say that we know. And it's no different than whether we know about a kid who shot his best friend in 1807 and somebody who tries to take their own life in 2021. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of information that would take longer to understand and i we should be humble a little more humbled yeah by the fact of what we don't know i mean one of the best things that ever happened to me um when i started writing about this you know i met Kay redfield jameson the wonderful writer on bipolar disorder who wrote an unquiet mind yeah. uh, who i did a profile of uh, for the washington post magazine before it was the first time she came out with her own mental illness and her husband who later died of cancer um uh, was this wonderful schizophrenia researcher named Richard Wyatt. And um, he would talk to me about the challenges in medical coverage about the limits of knowledge, that people who cover medicine don't want to believe that there are limits of knowledge. People who aren't getting better just think that they're not getting what everybody else is getting. That That's what they need to believe. Hmm. And so he's like, you know, I am one of the people who are sitting there trying to explain to people what we know about schizophrenia and what we don't. And we cannot pretend that we know certain things that we don't know or be and the paranoia that people have they're not getting the best care that there's some other kind of care that's being kept from them. Yeah. That is part of the challenge and his attitude in talking to me about it besides that we were friends like journalists need to understand that if they just quote people saying that they didn't get what they were supposed to get, that may or may not be true. Hmm. I mean, it may be their fear, but the question is, are you checking, to one, to make sure that the thing that they think they're supposed to get even is available? Yeah. And um, and if so, if, 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 they really, if they really didn't get it for some other reason. So he was really wonderful at that, and he knew journalists way too well. I mean, he was, inter- he was interviewed by lots of them. He, you know, and Kay continues to be... Um, and uh, I was very lucky to spend time with them when Kay was deciding to come out. She was one of the most famous researchers on bipolar disorder for many, many years. But she came out with this memoir in the 1990s. Um, and uh, so it was very educational for me as somebody trying to figure out the best way to write about mental health issues. And that's part of why I've done a lot of teaching. I mean, I've taught at the Columbia Journalism School about this. I've taught – I teach a course at Penn about writing about mental illness and addiction to undergrads. Mm. I mean, I'm really interested in the challenges of telling these stories. 
and of getting enough information to tell them in depth, which is more information than you need to tell your own story in therapy. Mm. Um, to, to, you know, to, so it's, it's been an interesting journalistic, uh, uh, process that, uh, working with Patrick, working with Kay and other people like that allowed me to then have certain take on Benjamin Rush and his son. Yeah. And, um, but the same ideas are in Rush's writing before his son goes crazy. I mean, he, and then he wrote the, he wrote the first American textbook on mental illness. That's the last thing he, last thing Benjamin Rush did before he died. Hmm. He got Adams and Jefferson back together in 1812. And then he wrote the first American textbook on mental illness, which is actually surprisingly readable today. Hmm. It's mostly case his cases and just his ideas about what's going on here, what treatments work, uh, stories about patients. Um, and it came out um, in the fall of 1812, and he died in the spring of 1813. Hmm. And uh, John Adams said to him, we actually have the book that he gave John Adams, that was inscribed to John Adams. Hmm. It's in the library up in Boston. And Adam said to him, this is a groundbreaking book. No one's going to know that. It's going to be a long time before people understand how significant this is. Hmm. Um, but you've done an amazing, important thing. And that is the book of his that really kind of is the book that people still read. Yeah. The As you're talking about that, you know, I, I, I don't – I used to live in San Francisco and there is a tremendous mental illness and homelessness problem in that in that town and just in coming to philadelphia in the last couple of days it's been noteworthy just experiencing the kind of psychosis that you see walking around downtown philly uh on an average tuesday night which was the first night that i got here mm-hmm. and i thought also crossed my mind when you were talking about just the humility of knowledge and how i often wonder about the things that we are doing medically now that in time will be revealed to be absolutely barbaric or completely pointless. Uh, and there's an arrogance, I think, of being in modernity where you believe that we know everything or we're on the cusp of know- knowing everything or what we're doing to treat people is actually effective in, in helping them, uh, which is not always the case. Last subject I'm going to get on. I know we're getting short on time. Although in, I will point I will, I will point out to you because the inherent of what you just said yeah. is the idea that these people are on the street because of that. Yeah. And I would argue that most of these people are on the street because they don't get care, mm. not because they got bad or barbaric or wrong care. And yeah. I think that that's an inherent idea that some Americans have that they really need to disavow themselves of. Mm. I mean, most of the people who are on the street do suffer from mental illness or addiction. Yeah. And most of them refuse conventional treatment, mm. even if it has been – even if it has been effective for them. Mm. Okay. So – before we want to blame society for, you know, it, it's very easy to look at homelessness and say, this is why we're, there's homeless, there's homelessness. Um, those of us who work in the field of mental illness, which I think of myself as a journalist working in this field, we are much more about the problem of people who have not gotten care. And it doesn't need to be medicine. It doesn't need to be hospitalization. It can be psychotherapy. It could be lots of different things. Mm-hmm. But if, we know that most of the people who have these illnesses have not tried or stayed on the best treatments that we have mm. because they have rejected them because, one, they don't want to be told they're mentally ill and need them. Two, they don't like the way they make them feel because it also restricts certain feelings that they like yeah. that can be dangerous. Um, three, they come to hate medicine. 
right? So they just don't want anything to do with doctors at all. Mm. And um, what we know is that in reality, the the vast majority of people who are homeless would be able to have more regular lives if they were able to get better medical care. And it's partly because of access and it's partly because of their agreement to to participate in it. But I don't look at this and see this as about being the, about the medical machine. I mean, look, everything's a machine, right? Hospitals are machine. Pharmaceuticals are machine. I've written about a lot of these machines. Yep. Um, but I've also met people who are in the machines who both look at the machine and know what's wrong with it and also know that a reductionist view that that's what's wrong with society is way too oversimplified. So the thing you hear a lot right now was, okay, they closed all the mental institutions and so all those people are in prison. Well, guess what? They aren't. There are many people in prison who have mental illness. Those are people were not in the psychiatric institutions in the 80s. You know, those people, if they're still alive, are on the street. Mm. They're not the, – the, the issue of mental illness in the prisons, which is unbelievably important, yeah. is about a lot of other things – you know, including access to care, but it's not because the people who were in these bad hospitals that they closed in the 80s, you know, aren't in those hospitals anymore. It's mm -hmm. because every time we have put together a model for what needs to be changed in mental illness care, going back to the 60s, when the hospitals were first closed, we have said we are closing these hospitals because we're going to treat people in a different way and we're going to have money to make sure they get treated in a different way. And then the next year, the money disappears. And so, and no one's everybody's like, well, how did this happen? Well, you know, when Reagan closes all the hot all the remaining hospitals in the eighties, and there's no place for these people to get treatment, that's how it happens. Hmm. So all I would say is, we have to be careful when we look at any societal issue, and especially a societal issue that has to do with mental illness and addiction. And I, I believe that this is what Benjamin Rush would tell us. This is what Patrick Kennedy would tell us. This is what I'm telling you. As somebody who's been covering this for 30 years, yep. you know, don't ignore the failure of access to care or the failure of care being paid for, for people who seem like they are, uh, the, the society has lost control of them. Mm -hmm. One, that's the definition of mental illness. Um, and two, uh, the inability of people to get care or to keep it. Uh, because the system gets bored with them having a chronic illness. We want mental illness to be acute, mm. right? We wanted to, you know, clinical depression, go away, get better, it's over. It's like a broken bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it's, but we know it's not. Yeah. But we don't know it's not to the point of making sure that we insure people for it and that we support people for it. I mean, part of the reason that I give talks in houses of worship I started giving them in Jewish houses of worship because I had written about this in the Jewish community, uh, but I give them in others too, is because um, houses, houses of faith don't always support people with mental illness and addiction as much as they think they're supporting them. Hmm. You know, there's there's a little bit of a thing that hangs over it that if you believed more, you wouldn't really be this bad. Yeah. And um, the divide between mental illness and addiction and which causes what and blah, 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 blah kind of hangs in the balance. And it's and people tisk, right? Yeah, that wouldn't happen to my kid. Yeah. So even though we know that these things are not caused by bad parenting, if somebody's kid gets sick, there's still like some community tisking because well that wouldn't happen to my kid because I'm not like 
Sally, you know. Um, those kinds of things that happen in these communities are unbelievably painful, unbelievably hurtful. One of the things we could actually do something about if people just pay attention to the challenges of mental illness in these communities. So it's um, it is again, it's the, it goes back to the thing you said before. It's not a moral failing. Hmm. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's not because you're not believing hard enough. It's because you have an illness. We can debate whether it's an illness of the brain or the mind. We can debate about what works better. There are multiple approaches that work better, and there's and the, and there's many times that the best gold standard treatment don't don't help. Yeah. And we have to be able to accept those realities. And I think the first person who tried to explain that to us is Benjamin Rush, even before he realized. And, and the irony is like after his son is in the hospital, so the whole time he's there, he's trying to get the hospital to spend more money on mental illness. And then when John is hospitalized, he writes another letter to the board. And he basically says, like, I've been telling you this since before my kid was in the hospital. In case anybody there thinks I'm only saying this because my yeah. kid's in the hospital. Go back and look at all the other letters I wrote, you know, before when this was just an issue for me as a doctor. Maybe we can close on that. And I, I would love to get your first of all, I just want to thank you for the time again and the and the conversation and your insight and into all of these different subjects. Um, I really appreciate it. And I, I've so enjoyed you being able to just share your knowledge about all these different subjects. Thank so, you. Thank you very much. Uh, in closing, I guess the, the last question I would want to talk to you about, and I wasn't expecting to go so deeply into this, but related to mental health specifically, you know, if you could be king of the U.S. for, you know, a day and implement something that would stick in the culture, in the in the society, in the political system related to mental health or, or healthcare generally, what what do you think is the most beneficial act that we as a as a country or you as this hypothetical king could implement? Um, to really ease some suffering and improve the the mental health uh, crisis and issues that we see in our country. Well, of course, America doesn't have a king. Yeah, right. We're not going to have kings. Even going back to John Adams, who was accused of of thinking that American president maybe should be a king. So let's not let's not go into, into kinging. But um, I think that there are things that can be done that we haven't done. Yeah. Uh, they have to do with one allowing the different parts of the mental illness world to be siloed from each other rather than putting them all together. So some parts of mental illness are handled by uh, SAMHSA and mm -hmm. some of them are handled by health by the Department of Health. And, you know, there's like the soft science and the hard science. Uh, same thing as things that are separated between the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institutes of Health. So these are like structural things. Yeah. I mean, the biggest issue is money. Are we funding uh, research that uh, will not only look at the big picture questions of how to understand the brain, but the day-to-day -day questions of clinical care for now. So there's a basic fight within mental illness and addiction world that shouldn't be a fight because the answer should be that we pay for both. Hmm. Okay, We want to do forward-looking research to see if we can understand the neuroscience of these illnesses and develop new treatments for them, hmm. or even new ways of looking at them. I mean, there's been some question raised about whether even our descriptive ways of calling these diseases these diseases is, in fact, something that we're later going to see we're going to see differently. Hmm. Those are fascinating questions, and there should be plenty of money for that. That's the moonshot into your brain, right? I want that money to be spent on the moonshot into my brain yeah. before this uh, sending somebody to Mars. Hmm. You know, the Mar the first Mars I want to explore is the rest of the brain, but. What has happened in our country in the in the science field is that we either look at the neuroscience, the big science, the genetic science, 
or we look at clinical care. We seem to be unable to do both at the same time. But if you're somebody with bipolar disorder, okay, you are of course hoping that somebody's going to have some big genetic breakthrough that's going to change the way the next generations are treated. But you also want to know that there is money to uh, research the best use of the meds that are available, the best use of a combination of meds and different therapies that are available. And I'm here to tell you that that kind of research doesn't get any funding unless, in most cases, it comes from drug companies funding uses for their drugs. Hmm. And that is not the drug company's fault. It's not the drug company's fault that they want to research their own drugs. Hmm. It's We have a federal government to do things that private companies aren't going to do yeah. because it isn't always in their best interest. You know, but so the big studies in all of medicine that change the way we view care, not the future of what our understanding of the heart is, but of the care right now are unbelievably expensive, right? And and they're, they're I mean, I don't know how much you know about this, but in, in each of the areas of medicine, there are a handful of studies that cost so much money hmm. that actually compared the different things that were happening in the real world then, right? This treatment versus this treatment versus no treatment, you know, over some period of time to see how it unfolds. Mm. Those studies cost a fortune. They're really hard to create. But those studies are always the first ones to go. And sometimes it's in the name of science. We're going to find out about the genetics where, and the, all that's going to fix. It, it shouldn't be either or. Mm. And so this is the thing that is true in many aspects of medicine, but based on how well the, the, the treatments you have have already been studied and how well they work, you are at a detriment if those studies don't get done. And mm -hmm. it is my belief that in mental illness and addiction, you have the most opportunities to do clinical studies that give us answers that let us know when a 25-year-old kid has his first psychotic break, what is the best way to treat them? What works best? And over five years or 10 years, what plays out? But those kind of clinical studies, I mean, people right now just say like, you know what? No one will fund that. And we need people to be studying the future of these illnesses and the real world of today of people having them and getting diagnosed with them. Hmm. And we need to make sure that our insurance looks really carefully at what is needed to be paid to get people to be the most well they can be. Yeah. And there are just some areas that companies have been resistant to paying. They cost money and sometimes the money is spent and maybe it's wasted. Hmm. I get it. But we have to be willing to waste that money. I don't know if you've ever had sick family members. You certainly have seen some things that you felt like, wow, that costs a lot of money for nothing. Well, guess what? I want my relatives with mental illness and addiction to have that same opportunity to, to have that. Yeah. And so those are the two things that we know day in, day out uh, don't, don't happen enough. There's not enough insurance for coverage of these illnesses. There's not enough clinical research being done for these illnesses. And what that does is that it disincentivizes the next generation of docs, of psychologists, of psychiatric social workers, of psychiatric nurses from wanting to be in this field because they know that it's being strangled. And, you know, my hope is that uh, the current administration will be better at it than the last. Yep. Um, I remember 
being at the first meeting of One Mind, which is an organization that Patrick and some other leaders created, hmm. um, and the speech that Joe Biden started giving after his son died of cancer about a moonshot for cancer, the first time he gave it was at the Kennedy Library talking about a moonshot for mental illness and addiction. Hmm. And I still believe that that those are the illnesses that deserve the moonshot and that that are that are further behind than others. And so um, the good news is that these things are addressable. I mean, they're not waiting for somebody to understand what's needed to do some of this work. So um, I'm very hopeful that, you know, each administration that comes in is going to prioritize these things differently. Um, our president has a son who struggled with, uh, uh, with substance abuse disorder. And I, th- and I think with, with depression as well. I don't wish that on anybody. But I know that it makes him more sensitive to it. And, and, and President Biden has also had his own neuro- neurological illnesses hmm. in, in his life. So he understands that, um, that medical care from the neck up, you know, needs to have different kind of funding and different kind of priorities. And um, I am hoping that that will happen. And the only good thing about the incredible level of mental illness that you're starting to see people reporting because of COVID is that – it will make people additionally scared because you can't just get them scared enough by the state of normalcy, mm. which scares me. Yeah. So the people, those of us who cover the field or who are the people we interview, they're worried about the state of normalcy all the time. But they know that when people start talking about it being worse, that's at least an opportunity for maybe to get up to where we should have been during a time of normalcy. So – I am hoping that all this concern for people of all ages, uh, for whatever uh, mental illness and substance use things that came out of COVID, let's take care of them. Yeah. Stephen, thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating. Um, Again, I really appreciate your time and your insight and your knowledge and sharing all of this. Um, It was really great to meet you. And uh, thank you for for, um, just giving yourself to this interview as much as you have. I, I really, I really do appreciate it. Uh, It's been my pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.